Social media. We're all aware of the narrative surrounding its use and the real effects that it can have on its users. Unhelpful social comparisons, loneliness, even social media addiction. But is there a flip side of the coin? With social media, you see a lot of people in the world. You see their creativity, the different things that they do, and so that can spot some ideas for some people. Like the use of social media is encouraging like more young people to be productive in their own lives. Social media has a very positive impact. Research suggests that around 92% of teenagers in the Western world are active on social media, with those who are 13 to 17 being branded as particularly heavy users. And while it might be true that this usage comes with some pretty negative effects, people also use the platforms for a variety of reasons, some of which come with some positive benefits: increased social support, communication, facilitating offline relationships, and maintaining ties with old friends when moving to new environments, like university. I guess they don't call it social media for nothing. One of my friends now, back in secondary school, she was really shy, but I think when she started posting more, made loads of new friends like online, and yeah, she's just like a completely different person. I was basically like changed her life,、um, but that's kind of like an extreme version of like the good effects of social media. In a world where social media use and screen time in general is being linked with anxiety and depression, could it also be true that the same platform could be harnessed to promote, say, mental health education or research? We're primarily interested in anxiety and depressive disorders,、uh, and we're looking at both how the genes and the environment can impact the development of these disorders, risk for these disorders, and then also treatment and outcomes. Social media definitely helped us to get younger participants aware of the study as well. And are there ways that we can adapt how we use it so that we can see more of these things and less of the things that are causing the negative effects? Take a moment, have a look at the accounts that you're following, and have a look at the content that they're producing. And if that content doesn't make you feel empowered or inspired or anything positive, then unfollow them. The reality is, so many of us use social media platforms, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. As well as assessing the negatives, we need to also be assessing how social media can be used positively, and how best we can harness platforms for the greater good. In this two-part special, I'll delve into the debates on whether social media can ever truly be used for positive means, and ask if and how we can put ourselves in charge of the content that we view on our accounts, and what the companies might be doing to help. In this episode, I talk to social media campaigners. My name is Johnny. I am a, I am a mental health campaigner.、Uh, my big passion is, is young people's mental health, trying to really get that the attention that it deserves. Young people. I am Cheryl. I'm a sixth form student. And my name is Adelaide. I'm actually quite late to the game. I got、um, Instagram last month, whereas I'm, I'm not lying. I promise you, I got it last month. After all this time. And researchers. I am one of the research assistants that's working on the Glad Study project.、Uh, my name is Molly Davies. Hi, my name is Tilly. My name is Liv. I'm Elizabeth. My name is George, and I work as a placement student on the Glad Study for the Bioresource. To discover a new and emerging way that social media can be used for the promotion of positive well-being and mental health awareness, and the trials and tribulations that might come with it. In my quest to explore the ways in which social media can be used to spread positive messages about mental health, I wanted to talk to someone who has turned to the online platforms for the majority of their work. Johnny Benjamin is a mental health campaigner, 
writer, blogger, and public speaker who nowadays works with charities and organisations to destigmatize mental illness. Johnny's passion for raising awareness has largely come from his lived experience of mental illness that began in his 20s. When I was 20, I was I was really unwell. I was diagnosed with um, schizoaffective disorder, so like a combination of yeah, schizophrenia, bipolar. I was put into a psychiatric hospital, yeah, in a really bad place. Um, I actually ended up running away from the hospital. Just had enough. I couldn't deal with it, um, and I ended up uh, actually being talked off the edge of a bridge. And that was uh, obviously a huge moment for me, and kind of I guess the very very beginning of like a long journey to recovery or, or to kind of managing my I don't think I'll ever like fully recover but I manage my I try and manage my mental during this road to managing his condition Johnny took part in therapy and was prescribed medication but he sometimes found it difficult and isolating around this time he also launched his first social media gig in the form of YouTube videos he filmed and posted videos as a way of communicating what was going on inside his head Sometimes I have cereal for breakfast. Sometimes I have toast for breakfast. And sometimes I have my breakfast on the go. Sometimes I get intrusive thoughts. Throw the glass of water, Johnny. Throw the glass of water in his face. Pick it up. Pick up the glass now. Glass of water. Pick up the glass, Johnny. In his face. In his face. Come on, Johnny. Throw the glass of water in his face. I'm from um, quite a, like a middle-class Jewish family and we didn't talk about mental health at all. I was also struggling with my sexuality. Again, we did not talk about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I felt really isolated. I didn't know anyone, anyone with a mental health issue or anyone that was um, you know, LGBT plus. I didn't know anyone. And I found therapy really hard. I was very embarrassed and yeah, found it uh, very hard to look like my therapist in the eyes and talk about you know everything like um voices and delusions and depression i found it really hard so i actually started by um uh, making making videos on my uh, camera phone about everything in my head and putting them on youtube it was amazing because i realized that i was not alone people started messaging me from all over the world after watching my videos and yeah that was really 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 helpful for me Johnny went on to talk about the specific ways that he found YouTube to be beneficial alongside his therapy and how it was able to capture different elements of treatment for him. I think for me, judgment is a big thing. Mm. And um, yeah, I was always worried about what people would think. Particularly if I'm sitting there with the therapist and, you know, it's me doing all the talking and I was thinking, you know, what, what are they thinking? Are they thinking I'm weird? Whereas if you, it's just talking to the camera, I didn't have those kind of, um, you know, I just, it felt natural and free when I was just talking to the camera. And I guess the good thing for me about YouTube was, um, I could turn the comments off and I could, uh, filter what comments were public and I had more control. I think maybe that's the right word is control. I guess with YouTube and making those videos and putting them out, I did have control over what was being said about mm. the videos. And yeah, maybe not every day, but most days I get YouTube comments from videos that I've posted like seven years ago and people were still watching them and saying, oh my gosh, I've been through this too. And it's just such, um, you don't get that with therapy. Like your mm-hmm. therapist is not going to say, oh yeah, well, I've experienced that. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, you know, with YouTube, I just, just such um, just um, a relief to know that, you know, you're definitely not alone with what's going on in your head. It was yeah. really, it was really liberating. 
One of the organisations that were watching were Rethink Mental Illness, a charity who were particularly interested in Johnny's retelling of being talked off of Waterloo Bridge all of those years before. Johnny was approached by the charity for an altogether different type of project. So I was approached by Rethink, by the charity, after they saw the BBC documentary and they said, oh, you know, your story's really interesting and, you know, we can help you maybe find this this stranger that stopped you. And um, I was happy to do it, but I, I didn't think that we'd be able to find this guy because, I don't know, we, you know, this guy stopped me. I, I didn't get his name. I didn't remember much about him. So I just thought it would be impossible to find him but they were rethink mental illness were very much like well you know the power of social media mm. you know we can maybe track him down and we we launched this campaign we did the campaign i guess to get people talking particularly around the subject of suicide which is tough you know um yeah but we we you know we wanted to do it and, and we launched it on twitter it just kind of took off went viral it started trending around the world so that was really surreal the video of Johnny describing his experience was posted on Twitter, termed Find Mike, and within the first 24 hours it got over a million views and 40,000 shares. It really did go viral. I think we th- we just were not expecting that. Rethink we're not expecting that at all. Mm. It was a kind of, <laughs> they weren't prepared for that actually. Yeah, like all these, you know, high profile people sharing it. We didn't ask them to, they just shared it themselves and yeah, extraordinary really. Amazing. It was actually quite tough at first. I just felt, yeah, it was obviously quite exposing. Um, but, you know, I, I agreed to do it. So I think on like the third day of the campaign, I I was like, I just, I don't know, I just felt really, um, I was just struggling. I was struggling emotionally. Um, and the charity were just really, really supportive. So that made a difference having their help and support. But to be honest, I mean, pretty much 95% of, the feedback was really positive, you know, on social media. Obviously, there was that like 5% of people who um, said we were maybe wasting time or um, it was attention seeking. That was another one I got. So that was a bit tough. But, you know, mostly it was really, really positive. Yeah. The campaign went out in January. It was January the 14th. And um, it's quite a difficult month for a lot of people. And this was, you know, kind of positive story. Um, it was like a heartwarming story, a story of um, human connection and People need that. And just two weeks after the video had been spread far and wide, it looked as if the real Mike, or Neil, as he's now known to Johnny, might have been found. So Neil's wife uh, saw it on Facebook, saw the the post of me looking for this guy being shared by a friend, 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 ended up on her kind of newsfeed. And then, yeah, obviously she saw it and she told Neil about it. And so my face was on the um, post. Mm -hmm. So as soon as he saw my face, he (laughs) recognised straight away that, you know, that that was that was that was the person who stopped so yeah he got in contact with with rethink mental illness and um yeah they they reunited us and um again that was kind of like a i guess a second wave of like social media because people had been following the campaign actually and kind of yeah wanting to see what happened and supporting it so yeah just a really nice outcome i think for everyone not only was johnny able to find mike for himself Through his campaign, he was able to reach thousands of people and spark online and hopefully offline conversations about mental health and suicide prevention. Off the back of this, Johnny and Neil have been able to use their platform to continue to support charities and campaign for young people's mental health. I guess we we really want to be a convener, the charity to be a convener, bring young people together. 
um, and share and um, be support for each other and also, you know, raise awareness. And um, we've got, yeah, quite a lot of big plans for the charity, which is cool. This is really exciting. Johnny's story is an example of how someone with lived experience of mental illness can harness social media to help their own mental health and promote awareness in a big way. And he's not alone in this. I'm sure we can all think of someone who's made it big on social media by promoting a positive message. Johnny notes the story having a positive message really helped the spread, and maybe there's something in this. Some research conducted by Facebook a few years ago looked at the concept of emotional contagion by assessing how influenced users were by having positive or negative posts on their feed. They manipulated what users saw over one week, and some people found this unethical, but the results suggested that the more positive posts you see, the more likely you are to post a positive update yourself. And more recently, this effect has also been found with a positive love heart and negative angry face emojis that we now react to posts with. When I spoke to our resident young people, Adelaide and Cheryl, they were keen to point out how they found social media to promote things like creativity and success. I just feel like with social media, you see a lot of people in the world, you see their creativity, the different things that they do. And so that can spot some ideas for some people like... Adding on to that point as well, um, I think the use of social media is encouraging like more young people to be productive in their own lives. Um, there's this um, current trend of having like your life in check, um, like following a certain timeline. And the positive of that is that you're seeing people that are your age or around your age doing really good stuff on social media. And so that could potentially push you to also do well in your own life. So I guess um, social media could work for the greater good at at certain times. Viewing users with their life in check, according to Cheryl, might in turn positively influence people to achieve their own goals. She was keen to point out, though, that this could go both ways. There's a really good side and a really bad side to it as well. It's bad in a sense because people often think that they're doing the wrong thing if they don't have a car by whatever age, don't have their own house by whatever age. So they put a lot of stress on themselves and they feel like they're failing. And some people believe that when they don't hit that target, they've failed in life and that can have really bad effects on like your mental health. But then at the same time, other people who have who are near to that target or have surpassed it, it might push them even more to go and reach their goals, which could have a positive effect on their mental health. Even though a message can be positive and well-meaning, it can also have its downsides. Interestingly, Johnny even experienced these issues of social comparison in his work in the world of mental health promotion. I used to feel quite guilty about, you know, particularly if there was something that I don't know, something around mental health, like something about around mental health in the news. I, I was like, oh, I should be on Twitter tweeting about this. It's really important. I'm always comparing myself mm. to all the pictures I'm seeing, particularly again in the, in the mental health world. Um, I've got, I obviously follow a lot of people on Instagram who work in mental health and, you know, I'm looking at the pictures thinking, oh, oh, I should be at that event or, you know, oh, how come that person uh, is doing that mental health thing? There's no doubting that Johnny's campaign was hugely successful in promoting his positive message about mental health awareness. It does seem, though, that sometimes, for all involved, it might be hard to tell what the right message is for you at any given time. Johnny's advice is simple. I'm I'm trying to be more self-aware, I think. But trying to be more honest as well when I'm maybe struggling and just saying, look, I'm taking some time away. Mm. Um, And I think that's okay. I think that's okay. I see more and more kind of high-profile people 
doing that, you know, saying, okay, I'm just going to take a break from Twitter, from social media, and that's okay. It should be okay. We've seen how far one person's social media campaign can be used to raise awareness and lead on to far bigger things for mental health promotion. An area where we're also seeing this transition is in the realms of mental health research. If social media is in the forefront of most people's minds most of the time, then can we harness this as a way to get people interested in research that is hoping to propel understanding of, say, mental health disorders and treatment? I spoke with Molly, a PhD student leading the Genetic Links to Anxiety and Depression, or GLAD, study at King's College London, along with some young people also working on the project. To get an idea of whether venturing into a new world of advertising and promoting research on social media can ever become a reality. Molly first explained the aims of the study, which involved analysing genetic information provided through a saliva sample and why having the study totally online was beneficial. So we're primarily interested in anxiety and depressive disorders, looking at both how the genes and the environment can impact the development of these disorders, risk for these disorders, and then also treatment and outcomes. So kind of why do these disorders happen to some people? What are the best ways to treat them? And how does that differ amongst individuals? The GLAD study was designed to be online primarily because of the large number of people that we needed to recruit. Our overall aim is to recruit 40,000 people for the sole reason that genetic research requires really large amounts of participants in order to find anything. So online is kind of the quickest and the cheapest way to do this um, and also to be accessible to people. So people can take part on their phones, on their laptops, on desktop computers, anywhere. If they don't have their own computer, they can access it from the library. So the idea was that it would be easier for people and more convenient for people to take part in this way. The GLAD study initially used both traditional and social media to boost interest in the study across the country. This strategy helped them to target the audiences they were interested in. So we did work with a PR company for the study launch, and they helped us to design a press release, which we sent out to news outlets, radio stations, and TV broadcasters. Um, So we really wanted this to be kind of a national media launch that was these kind of traditional media campaigns. But then we also had a social media component. Um, So we prepared Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram materials, primarily focusing on Facebook and Twitter. We know from another study that collaborators did in Australia that the traditional media raises a lot of awareness, gets the name out, the name becomes recognizable, and then uh, most people are on social media as well. So if you see that on the news and then you go to social media, if you see an advertisement or you see someone posting about it, um, then that might kind of raise the likelihood that you that you want to take part and raise the recognition. For the GLAD study, we do want younger participants to take part. We're happy for the entire age range. Um, but for social media, we did kind of have the conception that this would reach a younger group of people. But we find that kind of everyone across the age ranges also use social media. So it's something that is maybe a bit more accessible as well um, to kind of a, a larger group of people beyond just kind of the traditional media. The researchers used various means of being able to get info about the study out to their target audience on social media. As Johnny found, spokespeople or people who were social media influencers were able to spread the post to a range of followers with tailored interests. For the GLAD study, we wanted these influencers to be involved because they have a very personal 
touch with kind of their followers and the people that are interested in their content. Um, so off the top of my head, I can think of Gabby Logan, um, who has a great reach with people who are interested in sports. Richard Osman, I think, did a, a post for us. We also had Sarah Close, who is a singer-songwriter, so a kind of younger female audiences. She's spoken a lot about her uh, anxiety and, or depression in the past. So she was someone who was very relatable and uh, could take part in the study even herself. So that also lends the study uh, some authenticity online. So if you've never heard of the GLAD study and someone that you trust on social media or someone whose views that you trust posts about it, then that makes you interested to look into it and also just makes it so that it's a bit less of this mysterious and a bit potentially scary or, or nerve-wracking experience that you might not get if you just see an ad with kind of no no personal yeah. sponsorship. You can even directly target specific users with certain ads, which the study also made use of. Molly explains how you can select certain people to see visual ads, for example on Instagram stories or sponsored posts on your newsfeed. As m many people will be aware, kind of when you sign up to these social media platforms, you give them some basic information about yourself, age, uh, sex, where you, where you live. And so these websites can then use that information as well as the content that you put out, things that you like, things that you follow, and they can kind of create a little bit of a profile on you. And what our study could do through this is then kind of say, okay, we only want people between the ages of 20 and 40 to see this particular ad. They live in England and we want them to be interested in mental health. If they follow mental health charities, post links um, to add articles on mental health, then that might be something that they can pick up on as well. So there are ways to kind of target these types of things. I was also keen to understand how Molly views this type of advertising as different from brand advertising. I think that for for advertising a research study in instead of a brand, you we had a lot of feedback about kind of trust and confidentiality. So when you're a brand, you're just trying to sell something, but we're asking for someone to take part and to do something that might be a little bit more altruistic. So we don't have any money involved. Um, and so we, we were thinking more about how to make it so that we seem trustworthy, that we seemed verifiable. Um, so we would have things about the fact that we're part of King's College London, which is a university that's well-respected and well-known. And then we also tried to make it something that would grab you. Um, I think that the, probably brands do this the same, but I think that their objective is more to just sell you something that you might already want, whereas ours was to capture attention and motivate you to click on our ad and actually go forward and do something that would take up a little bit of time, but that you're not getting necessarily anything directly in return. Within the first 24 hours of launching the study in late 2018, over 8,000 people were interested enough in the research to sign up to the website. In the six weeks following the launch, the team were keen to maintain this momentum as well as keeping the people who were in the study engaged further. They did this through a combination of paid ads and posting their own content, like keeping people up to date with study milestones. So we're really excited that it's a year on from when we launched the GLAD study. 20,000 people have now enrolled, enough to fill the O2 arena, which helps you understand just how many people that is. That already makes GLAD the largest recontactable group of people with depression and anxiety in the world. We've actually sent out enough saliva kits that if you stack them up, it would be five times the height of the Eiffel Tower. 
I spoke to the dedicated team of research assistants who monitor the social media sites and communicate with participants. The type of questions that they usually ask before they sign up is about what our study is about, and they also have like the misconception between the genetic links and depression. So we also tend to explain to them the,、um, how the study works and why we are working on it. Typically, we we respond to a question on social media within about three days. If we have a question like that, we try to deal with it quite sensitively. Try to we're not saying that people are wrong, and we're not saying that. Their opinions are wrong. We we just sort of say to them, well, this is what we have already found. We studies have already found it's genetic, and this is what we're trying to find out as well. And also, after they sign up, participants do came across with questions that are related to saliva kids and how are we collecting their saliva sample and or sort of stuff like that. A second, more indirect consequence of this social media communication. Has been the opportunity to build a community with participants in the study or followers who are just interested in progress. So the main aim, obviously, was to retain recruitment,、um, keep going recruitment-wise,、um, and using the Christmas theme would obviously think we create a lot of engagement. But also to provide helpful advice over Christmas for those who might be lonely or be struggling with their mental health. Also, just to provide a connection with our participants because we try to make them engage with the post as well. So we ask for their opinions or feelings. So it provides a good connection to our participants, sort of breaking down the barrier between researcher and participant. And another thing that's that's really great to see when we check our social media is that participants discuss their life experiences in the comments. And obviously, some of these are, you know, it's very sensitive, and they are vulnerable people.、Um, but they all support each other, and that's really nice to see. So it's sort of, although it's fundamentally research, it's also. Encouraging openness about your own experiences, increasing awareness, and sort of reducing that stigma, and just making people willing to talk about it, which is obviously really important. And that's one of the really great things about Glad is that I think it would it would be a waste not to use social media for this type of research anyway. But establishing this relationship between the researcher and the participant is really important for making psychology research accessible for the general public. And making it something that everyone can understand. Everyone understands why it's happening, what the aims are, what's involved, sort of the general process,、um, and where you can go from there if you're interested in it. The Glad study has used novel methods in research to capture the interest of thousands of people wanting to help propel understanding into mental health disorders. Whatever your thoughts, it can't be denied that the positive effects of this work and others like it, and the people involved, will hopefully categorically change the face of anxiety and depression treatment and outcomes for years to come. On the ground, it also seems like, for the most part, people use the study's social media platforms to talk about their own experiences and receive advice and support from others. This community feel is something that Johnny also touched upon. Not only through the comments on his YouTube videos, but also through some unintended effects that he once experienced. I did something which was、um, what's the word?、Uh, stupid、uh, last year. I was in a really bad place actually last year, and I put some stuff on Twitter、um, when I was in this dark place, and then I disabled my account, and then I ended up having the police come round because other people on Twitter had obviously flagged, you know, my messages and. Uh, call centers all over the country started getting called. Actually, I was told, and、oh. I know, right? I mean, I really, 
I felt really embarrassed about it and really bad. Um, and that really made me think about my social media use after I did that. Cause obviously the police came around and I was obviously I was struggling, but you know, I was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that made me, sometimes I forget actually, um, you know, how many people are, you know, reading those how many people are looking out for you. I know, I know. And it's, it, it, which is amazing. But sometimes I forget like, you know, the impact that social media can have. We should consider, though, that this community might also attract people whose views don't always coincide with your own. Liv and Elizabeth found that people often had valid questions about the research, which they expressed through social media, but sometimes people have different ways of communicating their disagreement that are not always as friendly. Something I found really difficult was uh, being trolled. I don't know, that's something that, you know, other people have had to deal with and there was one particular person on on youtube who was trolling me for for a period mm. and i would block them and they'd create a new account and, and they'd you know, troll me again and it was hard i used to respond to them and try and try and get them on my side mm. people around me were like there's no you, you're just making it worse just ignore it that's the best thing to do even though you want to you know argue back and you know yeah, just ignore it. And I eventually did. I started to ignore it and it started to stop. Um, and then what was really interesting was, I don't know, about five months after it stopped, I actually got um, an apology from this person. It was really interesting, basically saying, look, I'm really sorry I was trolling you, but um, he was in a bad place at the time and he saw me on YouTube. And at that point I was doing really well. And, you know, he saw me and he was, I guess, jealous of, of that. And it was just really interesting um, when it comes to, trolls or people being unkind i i try i try and sort of put myself in their position and maybe think what well, what is something what is going on for them something's going on for them um and also yeah just trying to ignore it or, or, or block it out or but the main thing is not to maybe argue back i think the most important thing that i've learned is to talk about it because i think when i first started to get trolled at the very beginning i just i don't know i was I guess embarrassed that I was getting trolled, so I didn't tell anyone. But over the years, I've learned to, yeah, talk about when someone is trolling me and and flag it up with friends or my therapist or, you know, and talk it through with someone. And that really does help. We've taken a look at two distinct ways that social media can be used by different groups of people to harness social connectivity for both the promotion of positive mental health messages and recruitment into important research. Both have clear benefits for the users involved and also for the greater good of increasing mental health understanding. But it's important to remember that even the biggest influencers might sometimes be affected by what they're embarking on. If social media platforms can be responsible for sparking awareness and creating spaces for people to discuss their experiences, then should they also be responsible for managing some of the side effects that come with this? And if the promotion of mental health awareness is easily spread online, then could this also be the case for false information? or fake news? In the second part of this episode, we'll delve deeper into how different aspects of social media platforms can affect us in different ways, what companies are doing about it, and how we ourselves can take it into our own hands to experience more of the benefits and less of the side effects of social media. Have you been affected by a mental health campaign online? Maybe you've been made aware of research going on on social media, perhaps relating to the effects of coronavirus. Let us know on our Twitter account, at Plugging In Pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>